Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt and Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. There we go. Yes, there it is now. I mean, we've had sound, but now we have better sound. Better sound? Okay, all right. Hello, everyone, and welcome. <laughs> We're talking about adaptations. Yes, yes. We are we are adapting to the circumstance. Right. Is that? Okay, let me turn that down a little bit. But interestingly enough, it's a Lovecraft Country just finished, right? Last night was the, the end of the, se- the season. Right. And we're covering it over on, on Zompocalypse now. And one of the things that I've been doing is this, we've been talking about each episode is how much it has been alike or different to the source material. Because in many ways, they're following the same chapter structure that the book mm-hmm. does. Well, the finale was, was last night. Right. And it is wildly different than the end of the book. I mean, like, divergent in... Every Drunk, incredibly way. dramatic ways. Yeah. That doesn't make it a bad ending for the show. And yet, part of me was missing the rather clever, almost um, the sting-like nature of how they end the book, where our, where our heroes basically sit there and look at all the forces arrayed against them and go, you know it would be really clever if we managed to pull it off? Uh-huh. And they do... But it's so different. I mean, and and it's an adapt. It's a you know you see this stuff when you're adapting t- books to TV or books to film, comic books to film, um, all of these things. You, you, the nature of an adaptation means it you know it's going to be different than the source material. Well, but. <laughs> do you think that's partly because the end of the book? is the end of the book and if you're looking at a tv series if it's a limited series okay it ends well and see there's but questions about that because like for example whole, lovecraft country they're talking about maybe they're doing another season or of well, original stories and could that be maybe that's why they did an ending that's different from the book it sets up yes and no because in many ways the book ends much more open-ended there's much more a sense of finality there's certainly strands you could run with with the series right. going beyond, but certain characters, as are want, whether it's book or movie or TV show, don't always make it to the end of their journey the same way. Sure. And some of those endings, I'm not spoiling it for if you haven't seen the final episode and you're following the show. Um, so, I, th- I mean, I was entertained, but I was looking at it going, "Wow!" They looked at the last chapter of the book and went. Okay, we want to hit this point and that point, <laughs> and everything else we're going to do ourselves, which is fine. So, so they implemented Plan C. They, they well, yes. actually, I think they implemented Plan um, Orange. I'm going to say Plan F for family. Hmm. Uh, a mi- mild spoiler for the for the the final episode of Lovecraft Country. It's all about family and what family means, gotcha. which I think is perfectly fine. I think like I said it's. I think it's a fine ending for the show. I have some issues with. Um, the power of narrative causality. Uh, 
but I'm a, but I but I write things down myself, and so but some time to time I'm like, I see the hand of the writer. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and that's always the trick when you are adapting and having having done it, uh, the both of us have done it. The trick to adapting anybody's work is doing it in a way that maintains the voice of the person who originally wrote it, in our case, H.P. Lovecraft, mm -hmm. and doing it also where you can translate to whatever medium you're going to, short film, television, movie, you know, radio, or whatever. Which is difficult with Lovecraft. A lot of people have stumbled along that. And do it also where you're not imposing your own voice too much into it. Now, with us, when we did Statement of Randolph Carter, one of the things that I had to to basically finagle through the, the narrative of the story was the other side of the conversation right. that Randolph Carter is having with whoever is else is in the room. Right. The assumption is police so that's that's where we went and so you have this this dialogue back and forth but you've got to also do it in a way that when randolph carter answers it, it you're not just saying the same words back right. and forth so we had i had to play with it but also you know the use of language the word choice all of those things especially given that we said it in the period mm -hmm. you know in the 1920s right and so twenty-seven-ish, you know, I think. Yeah, so you have to you have to factor that. I mean, there's a lot of different things, mm -hmm. and there are some adaptations that don't quite do that very well. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now, is. this is like I said. There are cases where you can have a an adaptation which is a bad adaptation of the source material and yet make an entertaining film. Yeah. Beastmaster springs to mind. It's a great B-movie. It's connection to Andre Norton and the novel Beastmaster. Uh-huh. Um, they share a title. <clears throat> they share the ability of a, of a person to communicate with animals. Yeah. And that's it. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> And yet, um, or or here's an example that a lot of people are going to know: Mary Poppins. Mm, yeah, the movie version that we all that so many people love. If you've ever sat there and went, "I'm going to get the book Mary Poppins and read it to my kids," you're in for a shock, because Mary Poppins is not a nice person in the books. <laughs> and the creator of Mary Poppins, they made a movie um, uh, with uh, Tom Hanks playing Disney. Um, about yeah. it where she was livid she hated the movie I hated it so much that flames on the side of you know I mean it's, she she was appalled at the change in the character <clears throat> and yet it's a classic movie people right. people love the film um, Dick Van Dyke's accent notwithstanding but um, you know so you can have you can have that kind of thing um the Conan movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh yeah, Conan the Barbarian has very, very little to do with the Howard stories. Well, it, it, I, except for the broad strokes. I don't know if there's 
and and I could I could have this wrong because I I haven't looked into it, but for some reason I'm thinking that the Schwarzenegger movie was just kind of an amalgam and it's, not necessarily based on any one particular. It's kind of Howard like a story. Tarzan movie. Yeah. Or the Sherlock Holmes films set during World War II. Um, first of all, Holmes and Watson looking very sprightly uh-huh. for uh, being something into 90, 100 years old. Uh, but also there are, um, it's the concept of the character in the story that we've completely made up. Right. That has nothing to do with the source material. So Tarzan's an example of that. We um, There's no really... There really isn't a faithful adaptation of Tarzan. Oddly enough, the legend of Greystroke in terms of story mm-hmm. is very is, is close to a lot of things. Uh, but um, you mean Disney's animated Tarzan is not faithful to the to the source material? We could talk about uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame for a while <laughs> because the movie version. You know, there's another. There's another, and you mentioned you mentioned. Uh, uh, um, Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. Another one along those lines is The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. Because The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, <laughs> the book by L. Frank Baum, is not hugely different, but it's different enough. Because mm-hmm. when, we when we were doing radio theater, we had a radio theater group up north uh, a long time ago. And we got uh, the script because it was in the public domain. And we figured, okay, we'll we'll do this radio theater play Mm. of The Wizard of Oz. So I went back to the original novel and started doing that as the adaptation and realized that it's different enough that the audience was probably not going to recognize the story because mm-hmm. there are other there are other there are a lot more scenes that are other characters that Dorothy interacts with throughout the entire story there's a lot more to it yeah and so what i ended up having to do was basically kind of take the movie and the book and merge the two and take bits and pieces from mm-hmm. each of them and i did the silver shoes instead of the the red ones right because that's in the original book there are pieces of the book that I went ahead and left out of the radio play because nobody it would confuse the audience, likely, and also we started to get really long because mm-hmm, right. it's not a short book. And this is a challenge in any adaptation of adapting a book, a novel, to a movie, and we see this all the time, mm-hmm. where you have to strip out secondary storylines and... Characters just disappear. They get combined. Yeah. Um, and of course, like I mentioned, mentioning Dune. First of all, in what's book going to be four hour, a two parter if they do it right. It's basically going to be a four hour film, which is which is still going to be tight. Sci-fi did it in six. Yeah. Um, now that doesn't I don't doesn't mean you can't do it. There's some side there's some side paths. Herbert gave you a lot of history and internal dialogue that is really hard to take bring to the screen without here's our info dump yeah. thud you know and and so you're you can do a whole lot of telling and, and or showing and not telling which yeah. is fine um but one of the things that we ran into people ran into issues with david lynch's version is that he tried to do some of that internal dialogue 
and you end up with clunky voiceover, which mm -hmm. is a, a, I mean, it's it's tough. Internal thought, bringing that to the screen is a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. He didn't think that he could realistically do the um, very unique fighting style that the weirding way is in the books. And so he sat there and went, well, there's this voice power they do, so let's turn it into a weapon. And so suddenly we have sonic weapons. And it's like, yeah, okay, I see what you did there. But, but yeah. I mean, and so, of course, um, with the new film, they're talking about they basically did their best to invent a new fighting style so they could have this thing that you could see that would be this, like, you know, I'm going to teach you this thing, and everyone's going to be like, ooh. And, but they also have, you know, monies, well, large it, sums. It, to play with. <coughs> it could very well be that we end up with another, with the next bullet time that comes out of this. Where, you know, you invent something and now everybody wants to use it because, oh, that's a cool thing. And Yeah, I, that's, that's, that's his chance. I kind of hope not. I think that what I'm really looking forward to is, you know, one of, the, one of the many areas that, as much as there is some fun to be found in the David Lynch Dune. And Frank Herbert actually enjoyed the film, from what we understand. Mm. Um, he didn't know, it wasn't necessarily a great adaptation of his book, but he enjoyed the movie. Right. Um, but the... I wonder if he and Stephen King ever had a conversation. <laughs> Robert in the chat says, Total Recall was definitely a great amalgam of Philip K. Dick's repeated themes. Mm. Uh, the movie's an example of the film improving on the story by delving in, in even deeper into the creator's vision. Um, I think the first, the first adaptation, the first version of that movie... I didn't see the uh, the, so this, the one with Colin Farrell. The problem with the second one is that they tried to do something which, on paper, on paper sounds like an interesting idea. Is ground the story, leave it on Earth, try and play with the whole setup in a different way. Okay, fine, new yeah. adaptation, great. Yeah. But it also pulls out the very very classic thing that really makes the first version work, which is the mind screw aspect. Is this real? How much of this is something you're experiencing as a, you know, implanted memory? And once you pull out that central ambiguity, mm -hmm. it becomes just another action movie. And it's a well-crafted action movie that you sit there and go, okay, I've watched it. It was a movie. It had Colin Farrell in it, and it was—I it was, think it was a sci-fi picture. I, I don't remember. So let, let <laughs> I mean, me let me let no. me posit let me posit this for you here. <sighs> On some level, would you consider a remake a type of adaptation? So, yes. If and here's where here's where you might get into your hair-splitting territory, right? Mm-hmm. Because you've got Robocop as a remake, reboot, sequel, thing. Oh, it's definitely... I, it's, but okay. Robocop wasn't an adaptation of anything else. Uh, okay, yeah. Because so, if you were to do something like um, uh, um, uh, I Am Legend, for example, mm -hmm. you have multiple movies that use the book as the source material. The Thing is another, you know, the thing from sure, another world but, okay. and the thing goes back to source material as opposed to 
book to movie to remake movie. Well, but see, you could argue very strongly that um, the Will Smith I Am Legend is not an adaptation of the novel, but it's an adaptation of the Omega Man. Right. Because the story beats and how it plays out is much, much closer to the Charlton Heston movie than it is to the source material. So would you consider that an an adaptation twice removed? Probably, yeah. Because when you get into remakes, because you're basically redoing something that's already been done on one level, Mm -hmm. you're doing it differently, hopefully, unless you're remaking Psycho. And then, um, that was just, why? Why even you why do, even bother? You do that as your master's thesis, your doctoral thesis in film school. <laughs> but that's when you blow that's when you blow away the, the doctoral review board. You sit there, I've remade Psycho, and they go, This is an incredible technical achievement. Here's your doctorate. Now yes, go make up an original movie. But a <laughs> shot not a remake. For shot remake of Psycho. There's just no point well, to it. At all. There's clearly no commercial point to it. That's why I said as an exercise. I don't exercise, see any creative point to it As either. an exercise in you in you figuring out, because I mean, people do this, right? You go and you reproduce, or uh, Todd Norris, a filmmaker here in town. Sure. Very, very talented guy. Um, he redid, he re- did a shot for shot version of one of the scenes in Blade Runner because he wanted to understand the technique. Right, but that's... That's an exercise for your own personal right. edification and, and professional education. That's why I say that, that the, the, you the, don't do that for public consumption to go out there and say, "Look at what I did." You, you, it's you this take, thing that somebody else already did. You turn it in as your doctoral <laughs> thesis and and get you know, uh, and then the studio chases you, but you don't release it as a as a feature film. Yeah. Um, well, it's like those it's like those kids who remake uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in their backyard. That's that's how I think of this remake of Psycho. It's like, oh, it's the it's the kids in the garage. Bigger, a lot bigger yeah. budget in the cast. It, it just doesn't. I've never understood any kind of a of a remake that doesn't do something different, doesn't do something new. You're gonna if you're gonna redo it, put your own stamp on it, whether it's necessary to do the remake or not. I mean, you sure. could argue that, mm-hmm. but if you're deciding to do that. Mm-hmm. At least make it unique enough that it stands on its own. Sure. But like we were talking about last week, we are talking about Alan Moore films, films based on Alan Moore works. There's a fundamental, there seems to be a fundamental lack of desire of the folks making these movies. And there's a pretty impressive range of talent behind the Alan Moore adaptations. Yeah. I mean, however you feel about... You know uh, Zack Snyder's work, you know, um, or you feel about uh, um, oh, for heaven's sakes, uh, Wachowski's. However, you feel about their bodies of work, you like their movies, don't like their movies, whatever. Right. The fact is, is that these are some powerful players who have been gotten involved in making adaptations of his works, and yet strangely, nobody gets it right. Well, Watchmen is close. The pro- okay, but here's the problem with Watchmen is that, and you, this is this is an opinion. This is an opinion you can disagree with me. I mean, like, I'm, I'm I'm not speaking from like I am the authority here, bow before my knowledge. The authority is a different story. That's a and that's a. There's 
we we got the boys over on Amazon. Let's let's talk about getting the first the first the first arc of the Authority adapted into a miniseries. Yeah. You can stop there, uh, but <laughs> but the uh, well, Brian Hitch drew it. I mean, it's gorgeous. Mm. Uh, but the the problem is is that Zack Snyder Snyder made a superhero movie. Yes, and that's not what Watchmen is. A reminder: the bad guy won. It's it's not a superhero movie, but it's painted with a superhero pastiche. So I can see where that where Snyder would sit there and say, "Okay, this is a superhero movie because that those are the colors across the top." Uh, it, yeah, and unfortunately, it's, it's that's an issue with Moore's work is that people get be they they look at the surface level. And while the surface level for Moore is often very, very entertaining, mm. um, his whole point is that he wants you to look beneath the surface. Yeah. And and he doesn't just want you to go one layer down. He wants you to go four or five. So, let me ask you this. Do you think that Alan Moore would be as big a thing in comics, movies, whatever, if he had not done Watchmen or The Killing Joke. Let's say if he started with Swamp Thing. Um, he would be... Well, see, Swamp Thing... Or The League of Extraordinary Generally, if that's the starting point. So I would say if he started with Swamp Thing, he would have, in many ways, at least the cachet... Of Neil Gaiman, hmm. um, because both of them took existing properties that were one was on the verge of cancellation. They they gave it to Alan Moore and said, "Do what you want to do, man, because it's we're going to yeah. cancel this thing." And you know, the Sandman as a as a character had not been used in either of its versions uh, that most people knew of uh, in a long time. There was no risk to giving it to and people. Would forget. Neil Gaiman, at that point, had not written a comic book. Right. He was a reporter. He was, you know, completely... You know, he'd written some stories, he'd written some poems, and things like that, and they're like, yeah, do, do the thing. And they almost canceled Sandman and in very short... You know, um, at the DC fandom thing, he was talking about how, uh, you know, he was like, okay, you just gotta, gotta write enough that... The story ends on a good note when they yep. cancel me. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, he figured he'd get canceled in what six issues? Uh, I think it was like uh, you write. It's if it's not if you're not done by six, it's like you write to ten because then you sit there and go. They'll give you two to wrap it up. Right. Uh, but uh, and yet, both of them had an outsized influence, and they were they were part of the British invasion in comics in that time period. Mm -hmm. And part of that is is that both of them came in for with some very very interesting ideas that were not the standard superhero model. Right. And at a time when the standard superhero model was it was, well, they'd just gone through Crisis on Infinite Earths, right? And they'd relaunched essentially the entire line, and then over at Marvel, you had the beginnings of the end for them because mm -hmm. they were they were going you know because you're in the late 80s early 90s 
as they're deciding, you know, they're imploding over there, mm -hmm. going into bankruptcy. And then you've got Image coming out and doing their own thing. So everything, I think if, if Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman and, and the rest of them had, uh, had come in at a different time. Oh no, the timing was, the timing was very strong, but also yeah. the consideration that if, if Moore had actually been able to play with the Charlton characters, the real would, ones, the real ones. Yeah. I don't know that it would have had the same impact that it did that these come across as characters who, because he didn't have the constraints of those characters already established, yeah. he was able to take these, you know, make these characters a little more um, uh, original and, and make the story more interesting. I think you're right. But at the same time, um, you end up with series, these big, these big grand series that are not easily adapted. I mean, yeah, because, and then that's the problem with, with the, the Watchmen, the movie, in my mind, is that if you're going to make a three-hour movie, you've only got three hours for this series, which is a lot longer than three hours worth of content. It's going to end up looking a lot more like a superhero movie than Alan Moore wrote the story for. Well, and if you stop and consider how many different story threads there are, and like you say, when you're doing an adaptation... Stuff gets lost. Oh, stuff yeah. gets tossed aside. Stuff gets cut. You can't do everything. Mm -hmm. So the island goes away. The black the, freighter. The black freighter goes yeah. away. The, 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 the squid at the end. All um, of that stuff. Although I will say that there is a certain cleverness to the ending they came up with for the movie. I'm not someone who views... Some things work on the page. Mm -hmm. Some things don't. I... Uh, as much as I love to see a really faithful adaptation, I also recognize that moving from one medium, whether it's novel to film, comic to film, film to comic, yeah. film to novel, you have to you have to change things because the medium changes. Well, so I didn't have a problem with the ending. You can't have the squid without the island. It becomes very, very hard to have the yeah, squid without the island. Yeah, you don't earn that. <clears throat> Suddenly it comes out of the blue. You have to build up to it. Well, and, and it's subtle in the book. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, it's like, oh, now all of this makes sense. There's that, there's that ping. And one of the cleverest things that did, the, one of the clever things that they did with the HBO semi-sequel series uh -huh. is that you had these occasional rain of squids that were completely unexplained. And they didn't, there's no like, and this is why. And it's just like, okay, they're nodding their head to the comic, mm -hmm. and and they're also basically saying, okay, you know, but the, it doesn't matter why. The world got weird. Yeah. And and it's just we just we're we've got vigilantes all the over the place, and we're un, squids. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the it almost sometimes it makes me think that when you're doing an adaptation. It's almost some. There are some times where it's better to go completely off the map mm. because inevitably you're going to get those comparisons. How faithful to the source material are you? And it's like you like you said. It's much easier to do that with some stories than with others. And it's those ones that are that are the difficult ones that I kind of wonder, and and I'm gonna, 
I'm going to shoot myself in the foot here because I'm saying something that I, I, I don't... I don't know that I believe this is the best way to go, but sure. maybe on those limited occasions, caveat, 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 that maybe you do an adaptation that is, like with Blade Runner, loosely based, and you get to come up with your own thing, but it incorporates all of these different elements and themes. Well, I think, I think again, we come back to the, the thing that Philip K. Dick had some really amazing ideas. But if you're not familiar with his writing style, mm. you may sit there and go, huh? <laughs> and so you end up with films like Minority Report, yeah. which is, again, super broad strokes. You know, Blade Runner, super broad strokes. We Can Remember It For You Wholesale becomes Total Recall. Um, the Man in the High Castle, I think, manages to pull... And again, they had the space to move. They had a series. Sure. So, and that makes a big difference. And so you can sit there and, and explore some of those areas that you wouldn't necessarily if you had to be in an hour and a half, two hours. Um, a really odd example is... Um, oh, for heaven's sakes, it just went completely out of my head. Oh, uh, God. It's... Um, uh, it's one of the. It's a book that's long been considered unadaptable, and it is. He's from Lawrence. He's a famous writer, one of the beat writers. Um. Crap! They made a movie. Peter Weller was in it. Oh, uh, Hunter S. Thompson. No, 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 no. no. Um, Naked Lunch. Naked Lunch. Thank you. Thank you. Naked Lunch. It's not a movie that can be adapted. It's not a book that can be adapted into a film. They tried. They did. They pulled it off. I love Naked Lunch as a movie. It has uh, not this much to do with the novel. Sure. But it gets you inside the con it gets you inside the head of an author who is if you read his books, Burroughs is odd. Yeah. And so they sat there and went, We're not gonna be able I tell you what. Let's make a movie about how it feels to read. A Burroughs novel. And I was like, I enjoy this film. It was, it's surreal, it's trippy, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Guess what? That's kind of like reading a Burroughs novel. Yeah. And I, so I think that if you're going to, that's how you tackle an, un, an unfilmable, sit there and go, all right, let's try this. And, you know, you, you don't let the normal storytelling rules hold you in. Not every film can do that, but every adaptation can pull that off. The remake, the film version of Bewitched with um, mm. Nicole Kidman mm -hmm. and, and that, that set. I thought it was an interesting idea that they subverted the, the, this notion that they're remaking the TV show by putting it into the movie mm -hmm. that they're remaking the TV show and they're casting somebody to play the new Samantha, and she turns out to be a witch. Right. And so you've got that little kind of sideways shift mm -hmm. into that. So your your movie reboot adaptation is based on the thing, but it adds its own thing to right. it. And I thought that was that was a, a unique way to approach it, unlike the Dukes of Hazard, which is just garbage. Well, and I think it's sometimes you end up with a matter of, of degree of success. So, 
you may that that way of dealing with bewitched may appeal to you and it may not or you can sit there and do something like the invasion of the body snatchers multiple adaptations mm, yeah where they the the core concept remains the same and then you you know depending on you know how much you're leaning into the decade that you're in no. how much you're leaning into the culture that the story is set in, where the main characters are living, you can really change how the film plays out and keep your core concept and keep your adaptation of the same idea and still have it be a successful. I mean, we've, what, we've had, what, three or four remakes, two of which are extremely well-regarded. That's a pretty good track record yeah. uh, for, for uh, multiple adaptations of a source material. Um, and we're not talking about things like... Um, Okay, okay, we could be. There's been a bunch of different Shakespeare movies, for example. Um, and some of them have been very faithful, and some of them have been really out there. And I, I recall back when A&E was the Arts and Entertainment Network, there was an ad adaptation of Oedipus. Mm. And all the characters were in 18th century cricket outfits. It was very British <laughs> visual... Um, and I was just like, I, why? Uh, I, I, and I never, I never did understand why. And I never did get the reason why. I was like, is this supposed to be a upper class British thing? Because I'm well, trying to get like my that, it's like my that, angle. Joss, that Joss Whedon one where he brought a bunch of people over to the house, and they shot a Shakespeare play. What, which one was it? Uh, Midsummer. It wasn't Love's Midsummer. La no, it wasn't. Mid it wasn't um, Love's Labor, Labor Lost. It was, uh, yeah, I, I um, can't remember the name of it either. But that. But it was. It was. You know, they should shoot it in the house. Uh, Robert mentions the French Lieutenant's Woman, a fan with uh, a film within a film adaptation within an adaptation. I've never seen that movie. It's been thirty years or something since I've seen that film. Um, but yeah, now that now I'm gonna have to watch it again. Um, you end up with um, you, so you can look at something like say the the Walking Dead TV show. Over the first season, they said we're gonna hit these beats in the comic, right? And as the show progressed, depending on the budget of the show, <laughs> they decided they were going to either depart or hit the beat. Or come around and do the thing from this angle, and and you get that with that when you're if you've got you know a long running comic series where you're going to sit there and say we're going to do a long running TV show. You know something like the boys right now. Okay, they're they're hitting some of the big story beats, but they're changing things along the way because they you know it's like okay well this maybe they think this isn't going to work right in in the TV structure, and to some degree you end up with some of the the writers like when they adapted Red. Okay, um, you know, the, the comic book is very serious. The two movies are very lighthearted. Right. And, and was it, was it Garth Ennis who wrote the comic? I'm drawing a blank here. Cullen first. Bunn, um, I think. But did, whoever did the... No, whoever, wait, uh, uh, Cully Hamner uh, did the art, I think. Uh, yeah, but whoever, whoever was the writer said that he didn't care. He loved the adaptations because... Helen Mirren, you know, Helen Mirren with heavy weaponry. She, yeah. He's like, I am on board. Uh, <laughs> Let me look it up real quick. Well, and, and the flip side of that is you get something like uh, Game of Thrones mm -hmm. where 
you have yeah. source material and then <laughs> you run out of source material right. and it's one of those where you yes it is Warren Ellis and uh, Cully Hamner did the art ah. um, Game of Thrones is one of those where you know like you say you have to decide where you stay faithful where you depart well at some point you find yourself at the edge of the cliff and there is no more road and you know you can't think fourth dimensionally on some of this stuff but there is no road you have no place to go right what do you do and so you have to you have to forge your own path while you're waiting for somebody back over here to write, finish finish the source material and i think the argument they went with let's just set it all on fire that could very well be. <laughs> We're just done. Let's just, let's it's like, just let's nuke it from it. It's the only way to be sure. <laughs> or, or you sit there and you know, um, just like we talked about on Saturday. Supposedly, Monster Hunter, you know, mm, is supposed yep. to be like super faithful, right? They're working with they're working with Capcom, and it's going to be faithful, faithful. And you sit there and go, but is it? Because it's a video game movie. And there's a long well, and torturous history of video game movies not being remotely House of the Dead. Yeah. I'm thinking of House of the Dead. Well, I'm thinking that, of uh, uh, that you, raises the question. Here we pull. <laughs> what if? And I don't. I don't know how many how many adaptations there have been in this in this particular grouping. But sometimes you can adapt something, and you can be really faithful to the source material, and it comes out just utter dreck because yeah. if I'm faithful to the source material and the source material doesn't translate to film medium very much mm -hmm. then you run into a problem and and you know for as much as you get these people who sit there and go no we're going to be faithful to the source material how much well like I said, can you do that and 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 make something that's good and it's worthwhile well i think that you you can end up with something like you know the voiceover thought process thing from dune yeah it's just awkward and yet at the end they completely subvert the ending of the novel because you know paul ends up a godlike savior figure and yet if they'd ever gotten a sequel it's like and now we must tear it all down yeah. <laughs> Robert says they had a road. Uh, they had the real Hundred Years' War and War of the Roses, even teased the end of War of the Roses in Game of Thrones, said they would make obscure Stark king. So apparently, I guess, maybe they decided not to do that. I never, I, I didn't watch the show beyond the first season. Uh, HBO sent us the, the DVDs. I watched the DVDs. Okay, it's, uh, yeah, it is what it is. I, I never got into Game of Thrones. I, I, mm, so my brother-in-law is a huge fan. My dad's a fan. I enjoyed parts of it. It was a little too rape friendly. Um, I was not a big fan. I'm, I don't like rape scenes. Uh, I have too many, too many people in my life who have, have actual experience with that on, on the negative end. There's no good end, by the way. Well, um, and I got... And so it just know, made I, me uncomfortable. I did, I don't, so I don't... That kind of thing I just don't enjoy, and so it takes away my enjoyment of the show. I think the gratuitous nature of 
the sex and the nudity and all of that. I thought, you know, it's just... Well, it, it, it just... I get it. Okay, fine. You're on HBO. It's right at ours, TVMA or whatever. But does it have to be there? Well, and that, even that faded along in later it. seasons. Um, I think that for me, it's... I don't mind Grimm. I'm a horror fan. But after a while, for me, Game of Thrones was just like... I'm already watching The Walking Dead. I do not require any more misery porn. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, I already have my full of, oh my God, could we be crueler to these people? <laughs> oh, we can. Yay, I guess. Yes. <laughs> well, and you know, that's, that's one of those where... The effects are great. The, the you, world building is great. But you just you, get, feel as you much. get to a certain point and you just want to be done. You just, you, it, there's, there's just only so much you can take. And whether it's, you know, intensity of the grimness and the grim nature of it, or if it's, it's a TV show that adapts a story that does it so badly, but it keeps getting renewed. Why are we still watching this show? <laughs> it, it needs to die. Because it's a terrible adaptation. But the network loves it because somebody's watching it. And, you know, my eyes, my eyes. But it's... I don't know. I just... It, there. Adaptations are always a twitchy thing. You know, we mentioned, we mentioned Stephen King. How many of his stories have been adapted badly? And they keep going back, and he keeps letting them do it. And yet, we're seeing a period of time right now where they are doing high-quality, yeah. really well-done adaptations. And yet, they blow it on one of the most story-rich titles. If, the, if they had not done whatever they were thinking with the Dark Tower. I mean, here's a cast. Yeah. Idris Elba. Okay. Ding. People are coming to see it. Um, Matthew McConaughey is the bad guy. Yeah. Ding. People are coming to see it. Massive, sprawling series with parallel universes. You could spin off into some weird direction over here for an entire run of movies and come back to the main story. And it's all in canon. Yeah. And get away with it. I mean, and then it's just like, Wow, you've managed to strangle this series in the crib. <laughs> what is wrong with you? There is a a, a a book that he wrote with Peter Straub, mm. uh, the Talisman. Yeah. the The sequel to it, Black House, not so great. I enjoyed Black but House. It's not as strong as it's not as strong as the first one, no. but it's an enjoyable novel. The Talisman, I really enjoyed it, and, mm -hmm. and it's one of those. Now I tell the story about when I discovered my dad reading Joel Haldeman. Mm. He was reading The Forever War at one point. And there was another time when he was reading The Talisman. I was like, my dad's reading Stephen King? What? What's that? And so I thought, okay, well, what is it that's caught his attention? So I read the book. And it was it's a really good book. And the way it flips back mm -hmm. and forth between different dimensions. I thought, this would make a really cool movie. But then I thought, this is really long. It wouldn't make a movie. You'd it's have to do it as a series. Prestige. And nobody is going to spend the money for it. Although now... Now, maybe. Maybe. And I think that, that you end up with the 
opportunity to do something like the stand the way they're doing it, right? Right. It's a mega series. It's a you know it's a limited run series, but it's you know when you consider that we got um, a, a TV adaptation that a lot of people still regard pretty highly. Right. It's not a perfect show. What are you giving me a look for? Because she keeps wanting me to, to watch it. You should watch it. Thank you. You should watch it. But it's also, it is, it's also a product of its time. Sure. It's cat, it's, it's, there's a, I'm not going to say stunt casting, because stunt casting means a very specific thing, but it's a, it's a murderer's row of stars <laughs> of the time. Sure. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, that's kind of what they're doing with the current one. Yeah, but I think that the advantage for what we've we've come in with the way that we're telling stories now is that we're more used to seeing all of these stars in an ensemble cast um, yeah. for these prestige series than necessarily we were then. So the idea that um, getting all these stars in there doesn't feel as packed, um, more overpacked, over overpacked, or cast for. We we want to have this teenage heartthrob in here because that's going to get people to watch our show. Uh, obviously, that ca that's why you cast people is to get people to watch those actors. Sure. But at the same time, we're more more we're used to more used to seeing it. But then back in the eighties and nineties when this stuff was happening, the you know the all star cast quote unquote of the It miniseries, mm -hmm. those were stars at the time. Yeah, those were folks. I mean, you, you may look at it and go, who are these people? Well, like and, South. and not only that, Lonesome Dove. But you were also with it. You were also casting it against type, mm -hmm. because oh, you, yeah. here you had a horror movie with John Boy, and and Lana Lang, and Night, the, Jack the, Tripper, the and, guy from and, Night Court. And Night Court, yeah. <laughs> well, like, wait a minute. These are all. These are not drama horror actors. These are. But they understood, and this was even before, gosh, this was before we were really having uh, Robin Williams yeah. really unnerve people when he moved into his drama roles and really was quite scary. Or Michael Keaton. Or Yeah, that's true. Yep. Um, these were folks who understood that comedy and horror had the same timing beats. Mm. And so this was actually really clever casting. And, and the parts of that miniseries that hold up are the character bits. The, yeah. The, the char yeah. And I think that... that while the new series, the new movies can certainly boast a fantastic cast, a lot of them comedians who do, or have done comedy well, um, and a significantly improved budget and room to tell the story, et cetera, et cetera. Um, some of the things that they, there's some some chemistry things that I think really play out maybe better among the adult cast of of the miniseries than the movies do. And that's just because they had a little more time to play with those yeah. characters there. Um, but then you also have something like The Watch coming coming from <laughs> BBC America. Um, and I was, when they first started announcing some of the casting stuff for The Watch, and even recognizing this is like, we're doing our, we're taking the basic premise and we're doing our own thing. It's like, okay, this doesn't, I'm, a little, I'm concerned. Um, some of the things um, I was not, you know, there, there were some significant changes. I mean, Anna Chancellor, playing the patrician. Mm. Um, and I'm like, well, I, I really like Anna Chancellor, though. She's a fantastic actress. I'm like, she does sarcastic really well. That's the, that's the critical character point of the characters. 
can will the patrician wield his sarcasm at you? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And a chancellor? Okay, okay. Go on. And as it unfolded, I'm like, okay, this is a thing, and it's very steampunk. Okay, and and then the trailer comes out. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. I hate this trailer. I hate this trailer so much. And then um, uh, Pratchett's daughter sits there and goes, this show does not share any DNA with my dad's writing. Whoops. So yeah. she's wrong. It does share the DNA. It's, but it shares the DNA in the same way that, say, Planet of the Apes, mm. any of the movies, including the original series, so the ones that when the classic movie series, right? Share with the novel. Big broad strokes, super broad strokes. I think that's that's one of the concerns that a lot of people ha have over Amazon's Lord of the Rings sure. series now, is like with Pratchett's family, you have the Tolkien estate is now no longer attached to it. You have the 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 professor, their their consultant, and I can't remember the his name, but he's no longer with them. Everybody connected to Tolkien in any way, shape, or form is now off the show. Right. And now we're hearing rumors based on casting announcements and, and casting calls and whatever down there in New Zealand that there could be sex and nudity and they're doing the Game of Thrones route with Lord of the Rings. And you have people sitting there pulling their hair out because that is not Tolkien at all. Yeah, and, I wouldn't. And there's so much concern over this mm -hmm. because Tolkien was a very specific type of writer. You 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 have to you have to recognize that at his core, all of his stuff was based on his faith. And if you Game of Thrones it, well, not only that, it was you're ruining everything that he that he did. Well, I, I just don't think I'm. I would be very skeptical at this point, or very hesitant. I'm not, not going to be skeptical. I'm going to be hesitant to lead to to read too much into whatever the casting stuff says, because um, well, the the OneRing.net has been looking at all of this, and they've and they've they've pieced together clues and and yes it is speculation at this point but amazon uh lord of the rings is the only amazon project that's shooting in new zealand right now that's one they have hired a specialist on you know the the sensitivity sex scene mm -hmm. type consultant sure, right. they've hired that too mm -hmm. and then the casting the casting announcements that they're where they're you know, where they're saying, you are you comfortable with nudity? The code names for the projects line up with what they've seen before attached well, to it, but it also, it also depends on how much they're planning on using it for. Do they have a specific reason for it? Is it the way they're interpreting a specific scene, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? But there's none of that written into anything that Tolkien ever wrote. Well, but it's an inter... So again, we come back to an interpretation, how you're going to play it out. And yeah. the considering considering the restrictions at the estate, 
is going to put on, and I'm not defending this in any way, shape, or form, but from the point of view from the folks who are making it, the, the Tolkien estate is going to have, these are your parameters. And if they step out of that, Tolkien estate's going to go, yeah, we're not doing it because we told you the parameters and you've right. stepped out of them. And they might, depending on how far outside those parameters they step, but if you the know. Tolkien estate has sit, sat there and, and washed their hands of it, oh, sure. we're yeah. not going to have anything to do with it. But yet it still has the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien's name on it. That's that's a concern for some fans. Well, sure. But also bear in mind that once you sign over the rights, you signed over the rights. Yeah, true. And true. that's your own fault. And yeah. that's something that, that, that Rihanna Pratchett has pointed out more than once, that... They paid for the rights. That's yeah. fine. They can go do their thing. Now, I've read a couple of interviews with the folks who are behind it, and they've talked about the reasons why they're changing this and that and the other thing and, and what they're trying to do. And I'm like, okay, these are all perfectly valid arguments. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean I'm going to enjoy it, but I see what your mindset is. Okay, they're like, we right. want to, you know. Now, I disagree with some of the things they say. This is the problem. This is the problem when the creators get a chance to go out there and explain themselves, because then you can disagree with them ahead of time. Um, <laughs> and, and that's fine. But they sat there and said, you know, we looked at the watch novels and thought there really isn't anyone you could sit there and adapt, like, into a single story. And I sat there and I went, what? Well, it's just huh? like, it's it's just like Lucasfilm didn't have any source material that they could draw from for well, the movies. So the funny thing is, is that there's a, uh, there's at least one theatrical adaptation of the watch novels. And um, I'm just drawing a blank. The guy who played Avon from Blake Seven. Um, oh, okay. Um, uh, he starred in one of them, playing uh, Samuel Vimes, the captain of the Watch. And it's on YouTube, and it's actually fairly, uh, fairly entertaining. Uh, it's theater, so the timing seems would probably be a lot more punchy in person mm -hmm. than those watching on a, on a TV, but. Um, I would be happy to write an adaptation <laughs> of it for for a miniseries version. I don't have to yeah. because um, uh, Rihanna and the rest of the of the team that's responsible for Pratchett's uh, body of work after he's since he's gone um, have already made a deal to do faithful adaptations, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they do because she's very she's a good she's. She writes for she writes video game scripts, and she's written her own stuff. She's an accomplished yeah. writer in her own right. So the fact that she's she and that team are going to go ahead and and uh, and work on that. But I watched this trailer, and I think to myself, okay. Take a breath. <laughs> you love this series, okay, fine. You want to protect the thing that you love, sure. And yet, it could be a very entertaining show. I enjoyed the adaptation of the Rook series that Stars did. Mm -hmm. It's a god awful adaptation of the source material. It's just terrible yeah. as as an adaptation. But it's an entertaining TV series, as long as you sit there and go. They picked up the book, The Rook. They read the synopsis on the back. They found the list of the character names and put the book back. 
<laughs> that's because that's all they have in common. Yeah. And so it's very much an in-name adaptation. But it was an entertaining TV show. It's a terrible adaptation. And I want a really good one. But I enjoyed the show. So I'm... I will watch the first episode uh-huh. of The Watch. And I will decide... If I can take well, it, <laughs> and that's the and that's the thing where you have, you have that partial bit of time at the beginning to see what it does. Mm-hmm. That first episode, that first couple of hours, that that glimpse, right. okay, because the trailers. The trailers can be all over the place. Oh yeah, Tra- trailers lie yeah. for good and for ill. And as long as J.J. Abrams is not anywhere near it, I think it might be okay. I mean, you you have those things where you get a you get a sense of it with the trailers. You get a sense of it from the interviews and right, some of yeah. the footage, the behind the scenes, and the whatever. But you don't really know what you're getting until you get it. And it's in that moment when you see that first episode or the first season, depending mm-hmm. on what it is, that you can make that decision. Do right. I like this or not? Um, whereas you get... yeah, And then, then you have to contend with everybody else who either agrees with you or disagrees with you. And if they, if they don't like it and then... The filmmakers sit there and go, "Well, you, so and so, how dare you not like it?" You know, and then and then you have all sorts of other things that you have to deal with. And thus was invented the internet. Yes, <laughs> but I think part of that too is you look at something like, like Star Wars, where it's the the sequel trilogy that Disney made is not necessarily an adaptation, but it almost kind of is because it's somebody else making Star Wars. It's not George Lucas making Star Wars. So now it's now it's a it's another version. Sure. Almost. But the, and, and but yet Star Wars is a curious experience because the radical difference between the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy. Yeah. There's been this strange thing, you know, and that that it's never gonna measure up to the first three. Right. They were a place and a time, and everything afterwards is just going to be. I think. I think. I think the, and this of course doesn't doesn't make a movie studio happy, but quite frankly, for all the ups and downs of the book line, um, at least they were willing to experiment and to take this and and give the characters growth. You know, there's. I know there are folks who don't like the whole. You know. Um, you know, invasion from outside forces arc that went through. Oh, the, the but at least, bong. but at least they were trying to deal with. Okay, how long can we tell the rebel yeah. versus the empire story? Yeah, and so they they sat there and went, okay, what happens if? Well, you know, and, and and you can like it or dislike it, but at and, least they tried. Well, and part of that comes from there were some mentions in early stories about this threat from mm-hmm. the out from out past the outer rim. Uh, where Palpatine knew that there was something out there. And that was all it was. There was this vague hint of this mm-hmm. something. But the Yuzong Vong shouldn't have been it. <laughs> because 
it was a terrible, a terrible execution of an idea, at least in my mind. Well, I, I mean, thought, this is just garbage. Well, it, didn't, I, it didn't play well at it, all. There was a so. whole Doctor Who arc in the novels where, with Faction Paradox, um, and it was this idea that there was a... Um, there was an enemy that was facing the Time Lords, and this was one of the first Time Wars. This is before we even got the, the series right. back. And um, the, uh, the, the enemy who was unnamed, the goal was to use for it to be the Daleks, but the, the BBC at that point didn't have the right to use the Daleks. Okay. And so they couldn't use them in the novel novels. And so they came up with this... Uh, every time they had... We were like, we could use the Daleks here. No, we can't. Okay. And... So they came up with this really interesting character, this thing called Faction Paradox, which was um, a sort of a Time Lord cargo cult kind of thing. And it was basically going to build this idea that, that you know, to join Faction Paradox, you committed the, the grandfather paradox. You went back in mm. time and killed your grandfather. Right. And the leader was grandfather paradox, who had gone to the first person who had gone to do this. And, and so it was this war, this temporal war thing. Um, and in the early days of it, it was very, very interesting and spooky and weird. And they stole, they, they infected the doctor. So the doctor was actually functioning to some degree as a faction paradox agent without right. realizing it and all these things. And then it kind of went over here and over there. <laughs> and when they brought it back together, um, the guy who had created faction paradox, I want to say it was Lance Parkin, sat there and went, and he went off and did his own Faction Paradox series, which is Doctor Who with the, the serial the numbers followed. Follow up. Up. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and but because he could do that, he sat there and went, now I'm going to be evil. <laughs> and he basically said the universe is just, he just, you know, yeah. the effects of a time war that would actually have on, on the universe. And it's a mess. And it's a disaster. And it's really cool writing. Yeah. But even he gave up on it. Because uh, so far you can go with that. Real quick, Buzz in the in the chat. Welcome. Uh, welcome. That's a name we have not seen before. It's good to, good to have you here. Uh, talking about the old computer behind us. Uh, this Macintosh actually still works. Um, I can't do anything with it, but I can turn it on, <laughs> and it looks pretty and makes all the sounds. Uh, but it is a functioning Macintosh. Something, something, something. Power PC, so it does. It does still. It does still function. Um, but yeah, we've got everything with it: the keyboard, and the the mouse, and all that mm -hmm. other stuff. Um, all right, so I think that's that's a good place to. I think to the, wrap up I, for Don. I, I will say. I will say that the one thing you need to to remember is that when you're adapting a book to a film. You can end up with something that works, as, or a comic book too. If I'm going to something that works, say the Marvel Universe, mm -hmm. right? Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're not straight adaptations of any story, right? Um, and they're broad strokes, and they've they've remixed some of the characters and reimagined them a little bit for the screen and that sort of thing. Um, and and it can be very successful. And there are times that it's just not, and um, you can keep your fingers crossed and hope that the thing that you like isn't turned into something bizarre but again you can end up with things that are bad adaptations 
Mark Singer and the Beastmaster is so much fun. <laughs> it's a fun movie. They become cult favorites. And yet, you know, it's yeah. um, uh, Silent Hill is not a great adaptation of the source material. But it's a very entertaining horror movie that respects the source material. Yeah. So you can you can have these things work. Not everything has to be Mario Brothers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other. We we should well maybe maybe we should do that at some point where we take some of these really old uh, uh, video game adaptations or or different things. The ones that don't work. Mario. So Mario Brothers, Mortal Kombat, uh -huh. original. Steel. Would you include steel in there? Okay, so there's there's two there's two threads here, right? There's right. the superhero movie adaptations from the 1930s on, <laughs> because Captain America, yeah, his alter ego as a reporter, yeah, doesn't for work. a metropolitan. Wait a minute. Yes. Um, so we got those thread, and then we got the video game films, which would probably start. In, it's gonna start with. Would it be Mario Brothers? I think it's gonna have to start with Mario Brothers, and up through. Well, depending on when we do it, uh, not up through Monster Hunter. What was the last video game movie? But along uh, the way, you've got. Um, Jumanji. Well, Jumanji. Well, Jumanji and Zathura are not really, really based on games. They're they're books about games. Yeah. So you'd have uh, Mario Brothers, um, uh, Mortal Kombat, Resident Evil, Resident Evil, um, uh, oh my God, House of the Dead, Doom, uh, Doom. Oh, uh, what's the one with uh, Christian Slater? Oh, it's so bad. It's another Yui Bull movie. You. The, the video game adaptation <laughs> films of Yui Ball. Well, any 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 movie we could we could do an entire we could do an entire conversation on the career of Uwe Ball. It's, it's called tax German tax credits are your friend. That's, that's what that right. is. The subtitle. All right, that's going to do it for us tonight. Thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen, for oh being my. here. If you are uh, if you are listening to this as a podcast, or you're watching this replay. Uh, we do welcome your comments. Uh, you can leave us an email, h2o at sci fi com. Don't forget, all this week we are having the Walking and Rolling Costumes virtual party at 7 p.m. Central Time, leading up to a reveal of a brand new costume on Sunday the 25th. Uh, we do hope you'll join us for that. We hope you'll join us for all of the different things that we've got here going on at, uh, at Sci-Fi for Me, because we have a lot. Tomorrow, live from the bunker at noon Central, Rob Geronimo is going to be here to talk about his new comic book that he's crowdfunding. It's called Wirehead. It's a horror slasher flick type mm -hmm. story. Uh, and then uh, I think Robert Greenberger is going to join us on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, Cat Rambo will be a guest. Oh, so okay. we'll, we've got a full roster of guests there. And then tomorrow night, we've got Triple Bites. We've got Tartar Sauce on Thursday. Mm -hmm. So it's a busy broadcast week this week. Yep. And we do hope you join us for all of it. And you give us a thumbs up on all of it. And you share the links to all of it with all of your friends. There you go. All right. Thanks for watching, everyone. Good night. Good night. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.